Lord, we ask again that you would speak to us and that this deposit that you've left with us that's been preserved through generations um, by faithful men and women uh, would even again this morning leap off the page and speak to our hearts in a way that only your spirit can. Please address us in our point of need and help us to grow together as a healthy community here in Pennant Hills and wherever we belong. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we are coming off the back of a significant series through the book of Micah in line with our church theme for this year, which has been all about walking humbly with our God. Uh, you might remember that classic line from the book of Micah, what does the Lord require of you? To walk humbly, to, sorry, to, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That memorable climax of chapter 6 in Micah. And in all the chapters of Micah that we've been working through, and you might be studying some of that slowly through your small groups, one of the running observations that uh, you would have seen is how disappointingly ungodly the people of God were in the time of Micah. You get this picture working through chapter after chapter. We got it definitely as um, preachers working through it ourselves. You get this picture that at the time of Israel, their leaders were terrible. People who exploited the people who they were meant to be caring for. Their judges took bribes. Their priests and their prophets were more interested in telling people what people wanted to hear for a prophet than actually saying and caring in anything God had to say. And they certainly weren't doing uh, the job that God wanted them to do. Israel was supposed to be this nation, this beacon to the rest of the world. All nations will be blessed through you and your descendants. That was the promise to Israel's father, Abraham. That was the promise of God. But if you saw Israel in Micah's day, you would have seen that nothing, no blessing would be coming from this corrupted, degenerate, wicked culture. When nobody could trust anyone, that those in power were exploiting you and this is a terrible place to be. You'd be happy if you just didn't get infected by whatever they had by association, let alone be blessed. And all of that because they'd wandered so far from the charter that God had set. Now, what I'd like to do uh, in this new series that we're starting today, it's going to go for about five weeks in total. And what we're going to be looking at, almost in contrast, is what God says, what the Bible tells us a healthy community ought to look like. What does a healthy community look like? And over the next month, as you hear these talks and think through what you hear, I hope what you'll do is begin to diagnose yourself and whether the community you belong to is a healthy one, whether it's our community here as a church or any other community that you're a part of. And what we're going to say is that healthy communities uh, have a certain look about them. They are peacemaking. They are justice-seeking. They are grace-giving. And they are truth-telling. We could have picked a whole bunch of other things, but we're going to focus on those in particular. Peacemaking, justice-seeking, grace-giving, truth-telling. But this morning, we begin with a bit of an introductory talk for this whole short series, starting with a premise that a healthy community is a fruit-bearing community. 
Healthy things grow, and healthy growing things produce healthy fruit. The sort of productivity I'm talking about is a bit different to how someone in the industrial or in the mechanical or in the commercial world might think about productivity. Uh, I'm not going to be talking so much about being more efficient or managing your resources more effectively or implementing some new model or system to get a desired result. I'm not even talking about any fruitfulness strategy. Uh, for a few years now, you might have known, since we've, as a church, adopted our new vision document about how we want to be uh, healthy and fruitful and uh, a church that has space to grow, part of the fruitful arm of our vision is about church planting and church revitalization. So John, our lead pastor, and I, uh, we take turns sending ourselves to conferences and seminars and training uh, spaces on church planting and church revitalization so we can get equipped uh, and so we can get connected. And there's some encouragingly strategic and inspiring people out there doing their thing in this field. I remember this one guy, uh, as keynote speaker at this church planting thing, and he comes on stage and he has an apple in his hand. Uh, and he comes up to the, to the pulpit and to this microphone, uh, a good-looking apple, and he starts with this question. He sort of pauses for a bit, looks at the crowd intently and sort of just says, what do you see? And I'm thinking, uh, it's an apple. <laughs> but he says, do you know what I see? They always ask rhetorical questions. Do you know what I see? I see, pause, an orchard. You see the potential of what this apple could be. Not just another apple, not just another apple tree, but this apple holds in itself everything it needs for the genesis of not just one apple, but a whole orchard of apples. As these apples' seeds are planted and they grow, and those trees produce fruit, and then those trees produce even more fruit and set more seed, and it's exponential. That was his point. That was his whole thing. It's a church planting seminar. So there's some cool and very strategic and very inspirational visionary talk out there about fruitfulness. But what I'm going to point out this morning is much, much more simple than that. All I want to do this morning is to draw the straightforward connection between bearing fruit and staying connected to the tree. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus says this to his disciples. We had it read for us earlier. John 15, verse 5. Please uh, turn there if you're following along. Jesus says this. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, those verses speak for themselves. It's straightforward. Jesus 
wants, what is it? His disciples to remain in him. And if they do, they'll bear fruit. I don't know how you feel about cut flowers. Uh, There's obviously a market for them because there's a florist in just about every suburb that I know. And if if you've ever done that super early wake up to get to a flower market like Flemington, you get there at the crack of dawn. And what I find hard to believe is that there are other people there also wanting to get their hands, people bothering to get up that early to drive all the way out to Flemington to pick up their flowers. I personally uh, don't like the idea of cut flowers at all. Sure, they're beautiful, really beautiful, but I prefer my flowers in the ground because as soon as you cut them, they're dead. They're dying and they're fading, which you can slow down if you put your flowers in, a, in water and you put some nutrients some flower food into that water to keep them going for a bit. Apparently, you can do this thing where you can get bunches of flowers that are uh, half-opened even, so uh, they're not fully budded. You've got some that are sort of still um, unbudded, unopened. And if you get the right mix of um, flower food and put it in the water uh, and give it some sunlight, you can trick this dead thing into thinking it's still alive. Uh, Apparently, it makes them last longer. You can buy less flowers, I suppose, because the budded ones open and they last for a bit more. It's not always guaranteed, but that's a thing. Now, I know all living things this side of creation die. And even a flower in the ground isn't going to last forever. But with a cut flower, no matter how beautiful it is when you buy the thing, all I can think about is its passing, fading vitality. Because you know, don't you, in a few days, it's going to go a bit yellow, a bit brown, starts to wilt, and before long, it's drooping in its vase, and you're going to have to clean it all up. In what, a week, two weeks, if you're lucky? Now, you might be able to get an unbudded flower to open up in a vase, but you try to take a branch off a tree, a fruit tree, you chop it off, disconnect it from the tree trunk, and there's no way you're going to make that branch grow fruit. Good luck to you. Because you've cut it off from its life source. You can try stapling some fruit onto the branch. Look good for a while, but you're just kidding yourself, aren't you? It's not the same as organic productivity. That's natural when you get a healthy branch connected in a healthy tree. In fact, the emphasis in John chapter 15 about branches and about fruit, the emphasis is actually about remaining in Jesus. That's the thing that Jesus focuses on again and again. Fruit seems to look after itself if you're in the tree, connected to Jesus. But verse 6, if you do not remain in Jesus, you wither. You're good for throwing in the fire because you're so dry. So, how do you remain in Jesus? The answer to that is in the rest of this chapter, John 15. The whole thing talks about that. It's outside our reading, which was done for us. So, even without looking, I wonder what your gut suspicion is about how you remain in Jesus. If I were to ask you that, how do you remain in Jesus? And I wonder, would your gut 
inclination, your gut answer and suspicion about how to remain in Jesus, is your default kind of answer that you want to give to that kind of question, are you quick to say helpful religious practices and habits that will keep you on track? Would you have said, like, to remain in Jesus, you'd read your Bible, you'd pray regularly, you'd come to church every week, you'd put your name down to serve on a roster or a ministry team, you'd financially give to the work of the church, and that's how you measure if you're remaining in Jesus. Is that it? Jesus tells us how to remain in him. You read this chapter for yourself and you tell me if I'm wrong. Jesus says, to remain in me, he says, you do what I say. And what I've told you to do is this, love each other as I have loved you. Remain in my love. Reflect that love in the way that you treat each other. You get that right. All sorts of fruit will blossom and grow. You get that wrong and you've cut yourself off from the source of life and vitality that keeps you going in the first place. Think back to Israel in Micah's day and how they've got themselves so wrong. They had priests, they had prophets, they had the temple, they had the law. Anybody from the outside could look at them and tell you that Israel was quite religious. They always were. So what were they lacking? What was missing by the time Micah got there? There was no justice. There was no mercy. There was no humility. There was no love. They'd forgotten God's love for them and they'd neglected to love each other. Do you remember what Micah 6 says? Micah 6 verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? All this religious exercise. But no, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Somehow it's always easier to be religious than to be godly. It's easier to manipulate a framework of rules than to be like God and to image Him. And imaging him, I think, is what we were made to be. It's such a subtle and gradual slippery slope that happens, sometimes over uh, generations. Like with Israel, maybe you can imagine, imagine for a moment being part of that first generation of Hebrews living as slaves in Egypt. And you were there to see the ten plagues, one at a time, that God brought uh, on the Egyptian pharaoh and on the whole land, to bring you out of that place. Remember, if you, I don't know if you could imagine yourself being one of the original Hebrews who walked across the Red Sea on dry land because you see God parting the way for you through the sea. 
And you can, I don't know if you can imagine what it would have been like to see this burning column of fire in the nighttime and a cloud in the day leading you on through the wilderness and the voice of God speaking to you from the top of Mount Sinai. When you're in the immediate presence of God and you've seen and you've heard what God has done, it's a no-brainer to respond to God in awe and in love and in gratefulness. They were told specifically to pass those things on to their children and their grandchildren so that when their kids ask them about the customs and the culture that's been handed down to them, you're supposed to tell them about your experience so they don't lose it because they weren't there. But what you see in Israel, and I think it's true for all of us, you see their story, they forget what God's done for them so quickly. And you stop caring because you're more interested in other things that seem more pressing or more appealing. And so over time, it doesn't even take long. For Israel, it was a matter of days, weeks, when they'd left Egypt that they were thinking about going back. But over time, you might end up still observing a version of the customs or the religious culture that you've inherited while having lost the heart and the soul of it all. A love for God and that knowledge that He loves you. And you might have the outer shell and the form of the law left, like Israel did, without the guts of it, without the ethics and the reason which drives the whole law, which is all about loving your neighbor and about honoring your God. I suspect that's what happened over time. So by the time Micah spoke into Israel, Israel was, was this withered and fruitless husk of a nation. They had religion, but they didn't have any real knowledge of God. And I hope that doesn't happen to us, to our church community. Because evidently, you can, and it's quite sad, you can have all the outward forms of religion that you want, but still be empty on the inside. And you know what? you know that if that's, that's happened to you because when you go looking for fruit you can't find any there's this dry withered deadness and going through the motions but there's nothing there that's to the glory of God there's nothing of love and the fruit that springs from that now if you're inspecting Make sure you're looking for the right kinds of things that count as fruit. And over uh, the next month or so, when we'll be going through the short series, we'll be talking about things that I think count as fruit. Look for peace and justice and grace and truth. Remain in me, says Jesus in John 15. Marinate in his love for you and find joy in that greater love has no one than this Jesus has laid down his life for you greater love has no one than this Jesus has laid down his life for you and would you obey his command then to have that love overflow to love each other Jesus says, as I have loved you. That's how you remain in him. That's 
how you bear fruit. In closing, let me just share one reflection on love. I've heard it asked, how can I love someone when I don't feel like loving them? Is that really love? And I get where that question is coming from. You want to be authentic. Uh, You want to be genuine and real in your relationships with people. And if you do something because you feel like you have to, or because you know that's what God wants from you, but your heart's not really in it, that doesn't seem right. But here's what I've learned. Authentic love is seen in actions, not just feelings. When you choose to love someone in your actions, despite how you're feeling, that is love. It's as authentic as it gets. Jesus says here, love each other as I have loved you. And you know the way he's loved us, don't you? He dies on the cross for us. And I don't think you can say dying on the cross was something Jesus felt like doing. Uh, He said as much in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed, Father, take this cup from me, but he did it anyway. He goes to the cross, gives his life, shows in his actions what love is. That is love that he chose to lay down his life for us. And so as we we begin thinking about what it might mean for us uh, to be a healthy community, my hope and prayer is that we remain in Jesus like he's asked us to, so that we might bear much fruit.